Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the policies, events and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week's podcast will be about US politics. One year from now, on November the 5th, 2024, American voters will go to the polls to elect their next president. At the moment, it looks like the race is shaping up to be a replay of the 2020 election, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And with the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East and with tensions with China increasing, it looks like foreign policy, usually of limited importance in American elections, could be playing a much bigger role, not just uh, defining the race, but above all, defining what comes out of the race. What surprises could upset the race between now and November? What would America's foreign policy look like in a second Trump presidency? Would a second Biden presidency look different from the first And what can European policymakers do to avoid becoming mere onlookers? We're bringing you this podcast from Washington itself because we are in the middle of a very exciting week of ECFR activities here, looking at different aspects of American politics and what they mean for Europe on the wars in uh, in Ukraine and the Middle East, looking at what it means for China, but also thinking about big cross-cutting issues like climate change. And I have an all-star cast joining me here in Washington to help us make sense of all of these questions. First up is, is Jeremy Shapiro, not just research director at ECFR, but is about to become the director of ECFR's brand new US program, which we're going to be launching this week in, in Washington, D.C., Jeremy uh, will also be taking over the hosting duties for the podcast over the next couple of months as I go on a mini sabbatical as the Henry Kissinger Chair for Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress. So I'm going to stay in, in Washington for a few more weeks. And also sitting here with me in Washington is Maida Ruger, who is a Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR and uh, one of the co-creators of this U.S. program and co-author with Jeremy of the uh, brilliant report looking at uh, the different tribes in Republican foreign policy that we published earlier this year and that we've already discussed on this podcast. So welcome to podcast, Jeremy Amida. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to my my coup and taking over and making the listeners forget about you. I hope that I, I might even come on as a, as a guest in this new Well, version. we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on who you know. Um, so, um, so we're here trying to understand where the U.S. is going. That's one of the reasons why we're setting up this program, because we sort of feel that the U.S. is going through some profound changes, that Europeans have often been bl- blindsided by them and have uh, not necessarily faced up to, to all of the different forces that are shaping uh, American foreign policy that come out of domestic politics. Um, and um, I think that's one of the, the sort of key things that we want to talk about today um, to get our crystal balls out and sort of understand how some of these big societal changes could shape the the future of of US foreign policy and what that means for for us. Um, Maybe briefly, we can can start with what's probably less different (laughs) than than, uh, a Trump uh, victory, which is uh, a second turn for for, for Joe Biden. Um, One of the things that um, is is going on uh, at the moment is 
the this new period of poly wars where um, wars. Mm-hmm. the Ukraine conflict has been joined by uh, by the war in the Middle East and um, the two of those uh, are also competing with the the dangers of a war with China at the moment. How do you see um, second Biden turn, Jeremy? Um, how much uh, can we read out of the ways that this uh, administration has, has been coping with its desire to, to shift uh, its gaze more towards China and the long-term challenges, while at the same time being dragged back into these older theatres, first with Ukraine and now in the Middle East? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the Biden administration really has followed the sort of script of the Godfather three. You know, they tried I tried to get out, but they dragged me back in. I mean, they started off with this idea that they were going to uh, prioritize Asia uh, and reduce American commitment, particularly in the Middle East, but also in Europe. And now they're involved in supporting wars in in Europe and the Middle East and fearing one in Asia. Um, and so I I think that, you know, there's all sorts of good reasons why that happened. I think an, if an administration official who was here, he would say, well, you know, events, dear boy, events uh, dictated us. But they have been dragged along by events in a way that, um, you know, they hadn't intended. And my view would be that they will enter office with an idea of continuity. I think every second term does. But um, but there's going to be some realities which is going to which are going to come to the fore. They can't. They simply can't be continuing the level of commitments that they're talking about to the Ukraine war, to the Gaza war, while worrying uh, about an imminent Taiwan war. Uh, this is just the, the numbers just don't add up. And I think that the the need that they the theoretical need that they felt for prioritization at the beginning of the first term will become an actual need for prioritization in the second term. Uh, and they're going to have to make some hard choices, some hard choices that will be not so difficult in domestic politics, but but I think quite difficult for President Biden, who really um, is bound and determined to sort of see all these things through. So um, can you be a bit more explicit? You mean that they would what, force the Ukrainians to negotiate a settlement or decide to cut and run from uh, from the Middle East and, and move towards uh, de-escalation? What, what yeah, I think, of, that, uh, I think that uh, forcing the Ukrainians to make a settlement is putting it too strongly, but I think that their attitude toward um, dealing with the Ukraine war and dealing and negotiating with the Russians and thinking about compromises on the Ukraine war will simply have to change. Uh, they would deny that vehemently, uh, and I'm sure they mean it. Um, but I think that uh, into the if if we're still in the sort of similar place a, a year, a year and a half from now, I, I don't think they're going to have that much choice. And how much of that has got to do with um, you know weapon supplies and whether we can scale up the supply chains for for uh, to resupply the the U.S. Army and to make sure that there's enough kit? How much of that is to do with domestic politics and the increasing difficulty of, of getting appropriation bills through Congress? I, I mean, I think that they're they're very, it's both, and they're very related concepts. I think that there is. Uh, a real sense of material scarcity in Washington right now, which is just very unusual in the last 20, 25 years. Um, the deficits are ballooning um, to a degree that's even that's even troubling the Democrats. Um, the They're simply not able to um, supply 
Ukraine with the with some of the types of weapons in sufficient quantities that they uh, feel are necessary for the war effort and that they would like to supply. And there is there is a big effort going on right now to increase uh, defense production, but it's not moving as quickly as people had hoped. So I think that material scarcities of a variety of kinds will will matter. I mean, the, the it's true that the Gaza war and the Ukraine war only compete on a few on a uh, specific, for specific supplies and a few in a few very um, on a, in a f- very few categories. But some of those are very important: am, uh, artillery, ammunition, and that kind of and uh, that kind of thing. Um, but I would say more importantly, um, the uh, the the fact of material scarcity will have an impact on the politics, and we're already seeing, I think. Uh, uh, a sort of movement away from the immediate emergency and the outrage about Ukraine to a more normal, complacent place where people sort of get used to the Ukraine war and don't really feel as if it any longer represents a sort of existential fight about of, of democracies versus authoritarians. And I think uh, that Congress will be will be under less pressure, and we can see slowly but surely a certain fatigue setting in on Ukraine. And you know. I mean, the Gaza war is obviously in a very different place. But if we're talking about a year from now and that war is still going on, it might not be in that different place. Okay, I think we can, uh, you know, we'll be talking much more about what happens with with Biden's first term and there'll be more scope to look at the second term. Maybe one of the the bigger potential disruptions to the world order of Europeans is what happens if there's a, a Republican administration. Um, we talked on the podcast before about the, the kind of primaries and the, um, the, uh, the balance of power within the Republican Party. And um, given the huge lead that Trump has over, over other candidates, I think it's uh, safest uh, for us to assume that he'll be the, the next Republican president, if there is one. Um, the, the two of you have, have written uh, this brilliant paper looking at the three tribes of Republican foreign policy, which you called the the, the primacist, the sort of traditional um, uh, group of, of uh, Republican elites who, who want America to, to remain the indispensable power. The um, uh, prioritizers, those who, who think that um, it's very difficult to have a war on, on two or three or four different fronts and that the big goal is should be about China and uh, deterring China uh, with Taiwan as the kind of first challenge, but a, a kind of wider issue, which means pulling back from Ukraine and other theaters in order to, to be able to focus more on, on on China. But the third tribe was was... The America Firsters, the um, the the restrainers, as they're called, who who are not kind of necessarily isolationists, but they're people who who think that the that the number one goal should be the, the home front and uh, and uh, all these uh, other entanglements are just allowing people to free ride off America and to to take advantage of it. Um, we just had a, a brilliant seminar, which you organized, um, uh, or with uh, lots of Republican foreign policy strategists who were talking about how these three factions are going to end up fighting it out in a, 
in a Trump administration. Do you want to give our listeners, um, it was all off the record, so we can't say who was saying what, but a, a, a flavour of some of the ideas that, that they were talking about. Yeah. Well, perhaps not to kind of reveal uh, off the record <laughs> conversations. Why don't we just talk about the um, hopefuls for the um, presidential nomination in the Republican Party? We can attach each one of them to one of the tribes. I mean, you will find, you know, that primacists who want the U.S. foreign policy to focus on everything and maintain U.S. global leadership is someone like Nikki Haley. Mike Pence has just kind of dropped out of race, but, you know, he was in the camp as well. Um, the China prioritizers, Ron DeSantis, is closest to this camp. And, you know, that's exactly what they talk about, scarcity of resources. They point out that there's a $19 billion backlog of weapon deliveries to Taiwan, partly caused by the U.S. prioritizing armed supplies to Ukraine, um, many of the same weapon system being supplied, but also that the debt ceiling agreement has capped the defense pending to last year levels. So as long as there's inflation, the defense budget is de decreasing. So they are absolutely adamant that the next Republican president needs, needs to urgently refocus resources from Ukraine to deterring potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And then you have the restrainers, those who want the U.S. foreign policy to focus on America and solving problems at home. And I would say President Donald Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy, they are kind of swinging a bit between the restrainer and prioritizer camp. Um, so obviously the discussions between these tribes, um, you know, have huge implications for European security, mostly because the worldview um, that is kind of slowly um, getting into this equilibrium of need to prioritize really means that the Europeans are going to have to take more responsibility for their own security. So, Jeremy, um, you were looking at how these different tribes were, were kind of interacting with each other earlier. How do you, you know, who do you think is going to kind of win out um, uh, and and how, uh, you know, where is the kind of common ground between these different tribes? Where are the, the big kind of unknowns? Yeah, I mean, I think that the... Uh What's interesting is that if you if you sort of look at the 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 base and you look at the leading candidates in the um, in the presidential campaign, you see that um, the restrainers seem to have the, um, the wind in their sails. The wind in their sails. Yeah, they seem they uh, they're they're really. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, if you if you look at the base and if you look at the presidential primary, you see that the restrainers have the wind in their sails. They seem to be the ones that are dominating the political conversation on the campaign trail. But if you look at the Congress, you see that the primacists really still dominate, that they that people like Mitch McConnell uh, and Lindsey Graham in the Senate, particularly. But I would say three quarters of the Republican caucus are really still uh, primacists and the and that's going to still be true uh, after the next election. Um, but oddly, the prioritizers who have the least representation in either of these uh, camps uh, probably have the best chance of actually being having a policy that's going to be implemented because China is the place where the primacists and the and the even the restrainers come together. I think we see that really people are quite nervous across the spectrum about China 
Uh, and so uh, I think that it's for uh, President Trump, he's not really going to uh, he's not going to reduce the rhetoric on China. Uh, we we talked a little bit today, and I think it's worth maybe covering about the idea that he might be more interested in this sort of geoeconomic struggle with China versus the geostrategic struggle over Taiwan. But putting that aside, I do think that the prioritizers um, are going to be the ones that are going to be the main policy thrust of an ex-Republican administration. One of the other things that... Um is always a, a challenge for all presidents is the, you know, is events, which you talked about earlier. I mean, when George W. Bush was um, a candidate and writing in foreign affairs, he talked about not, I can't remember, what's the quote about not going after monsters? Um, uh, we, we, not, we go not abroad searching for monsters to destroy. There was a kind of, um, Condi Rice had a version of that in the piece that, that they wrote in Foreign Affairs. Anyway, it turned out not to be the, um, the main feature of, uh, of George W. Bush's foreign policy. Um, Trump was not able to do a lot of the things he wanted to do when he was president last time around. Maybe you could talk a bit about some of the the thinking that's going on to make sure that, that Trump too can be a bit more unplugged and, and able to, to do what he wants to do rather than constrained either by events or by the, the, the kind of deep state. I think when we kind of think of Trump's second term, there's two elements to consider. One is what are the elements of continuity and the second is what will be kind of the key element of change. And continuity, I mean, I think if we look into, you know, Trump's speeches and statements and posts on social media, his views and positions on foreign policy in Europe haven't changed. So, you know, his view of relationship between nations, um, you know, as kind of predators and praise, his disdain for the EU, his obsession with America's trade deficit, um, and also this notion that Europeans have taken advantage of U.S. security guarantees and ripped off America through unfair trade agreements. All of that is still there. Um, his views on NATO haven't changed. And the question is, you know, what is he going to do with NATO? Is he going to try and pull US out? Now, how to implement this the second time around, and I think this is where the change comes in, potentially, is that he is adamant, at least if you take him by his word, that in his second term, he's going to have different sort of people around him and that the people who acted as restraining elements in the first administration no longer have um, room around him in his second term. And so, you know, if you look at one, his focus on eliminating and eradicating the deep state, getting rid of globalists and warmongers. Uh, and there he doesn't refer to kind of Democrat civil servants. He refers to the internationalist leaning Republicans. And then in conjunction with projects that are now um, run by a coalition of new right organizations, such as Heritage 2025 Project, which really looks at, you know, how are we going to overhaul the bureaucracy and put people in place based on loyalty who are going to implement um, Trump's agenda or an agenda of a next Republican president, um, their goal is definitely 
to bring about this change and uh, kind of go through with the policies that he did not manage to do in the second term, in the first term. Whether that will be successful or not is to be seen, but that is certainly an, his ambition. So we've um, we talked a bit about what we can expect from the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, but, you know, with the European Council on Foreign Relations. <laughs> so, All right, I keep forgetting that. <laughs> so we should talk a bit about what this means for Europe. It, it sounds actually like whoever wins the election uh, is going to place quite a lot of demands on, on Europe that some of the, the, the conditions which Europeans have, have been able to enjoy in recent years are going to be put under pressure, um, whoever uh, is in power. Um, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why we decided to launch a US program. Jeremy, do you, do you want to talk a bit about what you think is at stake from a European perspective and, and also why we think that we need to have a US program at ECFR um, and how that will be different from the sort of traditional transatlantic programs that think tanks have uh, yeah. have invested so much time and sure. energy in in recent years? It's going to be totally different and, and so much better. Um, I would commend it to your listeners, uh, and not just because Mida's in it, um, but mainly. Um, but uh, I think that the the different perspective that we bring, I think, is not is that so many of the of the way the, the way in which transatlantic relations has been studied in Washington and in Europe is very much sort of taking the nature of the transatlantic relationship for granted and sort of saying if, if there's a problem in it saying, well, how can we fix that problem? Um, how can we resolve disputes between the transatlantic partners so that the transatlantic relationship can continue as it always was. And I think if you think about the analysis that we were doing about U.S. domestic politics and the relationship to foreign policy that we just talked about in, in terms of both administrations, the transatlantic relationship is going to have to change. Um, it is going to have to rebalance. The, the Europeans are going to have to take a greater degree of responsibility in one way or another. It, it matters a great deal whether it's, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans as to how that happens. I like to say that in a, in a Biden administration, it can happen gradually and responsibly. In a Trump administration, it can happen suddenly and irresponsibly. But, it, but the direction, I think, is the same. So what we're trying to do, what we're going to try to do in the new U.S. program is think about ways in which uh, I think mainly in the uh, hopefully in the in the gradual and responsible way, but also in terms of contingency planning in the sudden and irresponsible way to be able to point the Europeans toward a, a way of rebalancing the transatlantic relationship so that it can be that it can deliver more for both sides and thus be more sustainable. Because uh, it's our belief, or at least it's my belief, I won't, I won't uh, implicate the two of you, that uh, the transatlantic relationship is really important and will remain really important. But if it's going to be, but if it's going to sustain itself, it's going to have to change. It's going to have to be more balanced and it's going to have to deliver for both sides. And right now, I think there is a risk that it's really not going to deliver. And so when we say, I mean, you I think that's that, the way you laid out uh, is is great, but it's pretty abstract. So maybe we can try and flesh that out a bit. What does this change mean in some of the areas? Maybe we can just go through a few of, of the things. So maybe we just start with problems closest to hand. If we look at, at the security of Europe, what do you 
um, you know, Russia, Ukraine, the Balkans, the Caucasus? Yeah. Um, well, I think I mean, let's just take a Trump administration because it's the it's the clearest. I think you could do a, a, a totally dissimilar examination of the Biden administration. But let's just start with Trump. Trump has said um, that he wants to end the Ukraine war in 24 hours. Um, he uh, he has said he is it implicitly that means that he'll basically compromise with the Russians, give them quite a bit of what they want, more or less abandon uh, the Ukrainians and more or less reduce, if not materially, in terms of the, the political commitment, the U.S. commitment to uh, NATO and thus to the defense of territories like uh, Poland and the Baltics. So that means that um, Europeans need to be prepared for that possibility. I would argue that in the year that they have, um, they should be uh, uh, building up forces, taking greater control of the support for Ukraine. Um, and in the in the first instance, demonstrating to an incoming Trump administration that that's not neither necessary nor possible to take that approach, but also preparing for the contingency uh, that they do so that they're able to, uh, even through NATO, um, defend, uh, continue to support Ukraine, but also defend the NATO territories of Europe without as great an American commitment. I don't see in Europe really uh, a, an effort to do that. I see uh, when you talk to people a, a realization that all of this is possible, that it's, uh, and we're only talking about something that's a little over 12 months away. But I don't really see an effort to really move in that direction. So that's, uh, that's um, European security. Um, but we've got the Middle East and China as well. I mean, do you want to talk a bit about what we can expect in those areas, Minda? Well, yes. And I think, you know, just to kind of connect this question with our program and what ECFR can deliver there, obviously, uh, Jeremy and I are a great team, but we also have um, such abundance of expertise in ECFR working precisely on these questions. What will post-American world look like say, in the Middle East. For the moment, we have American attention, obviously, and assistance back because of um, Israel's war against Hamas. But in Europe's southern neighborhood, in Middle East and North Africa, we have a number of failed states and challenges that are directly affecting Europe uh, and very close to home. And so how will the Europeans pick up the pieces in the Middle East as the U.S. is retrenching? Um, how are we going to respond to America's kind of um, more hawkish, potentially, uh, strategy towards China under a Republican administration and live up to expectations of the Republicans on, you know, A, having their back on Ukraine, but at the same time, um, beefing up our China strategy when it comes to strategic industrial policy, export controls, diversification, uh, building resilience in supply chains, etc. So there's clearly a need to walk and chew a lot of gum at the same time, uh, working on kind of the economic issues and security issues um, where I think Europeans will simply need to realize what urgency uh, they need to do that with. And 
whether they'll succeed, not sure, but ECFR certainly has uh, quite many recommendations as to how to get there. So we're going to be coming back to you very regularly over the weeks and months ahead, both looking at what's going to happen in the elections itself, but also trying to to look at what it means in some of these more specific areas. We've been having some fascinating discussions this week while in Washington about um, how different people are thinking about reforming NATO, this new term, the dormant NATO, which is a, 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 a vision of some bits of the Republican Party. Um, and um, uh, we've been talking about geoeconomic challenges and what's going to happen with the, uh, with the agenda around technology and, uh, and uh, industrial policy. Um, as far as China's concerned, we've been looking at climate change. We've been looking at all sorts of other issues. And uh, we've got uh, many, many more podcasts worth of activity in those uh, to to, to go through. But we've run out of time for this uh, discussion. So anyway, people should uh, look out for what comes out of this program. We're going to be publishing lots um, in the weeks and months ahead as we go up towards the election. But And the podcast is going to get really good in the next few weeks. (laughs) So everybody should listen. And, you know, if, if I get maybe more five-star reviews or something, I can I can make a case to taking it over permanently, Jeremy Shapiro's world in 30 minutes. So there's, there's a possible coup here, but it has to come from below. So I urge you all to support me. Um, but before we do that, there is one thing left to do on this podcast. That's our before bookshelf before the coup, we have to do the bookshelf section. So what's on your bookshelf, Jeremy? Uh, I've just read a really fascinating novel, actually, um, called um, The Wizard of the Kremlin by Giuliano da Empoli. It was written originally in French. It's just been translated into English, and I think it's being published uh, maybe this week in English. Um, and it's about – it's a it's a um, novelization uh, of the experience of one of – um, Putin's key advisors, Surkov, um, and it, uh, but but it changes his name, um, and it looks at how he sees uh, the Kremlin decision making and the role of Putin and how the system works. It's fiction, um, but I have to say, uh, to me, it rang quite true, and it provided quite a few insights into what is kind of an insane system. Um, so I, I recommend it to everybody. And what's on your bookshelf, Maida? Um, so in the spirit of uh, of our U.S. program um, and the work we've been doing, my book uh, that I've been carrying around is Heritage 2025 Project. Uh, so it's been uh, quite a non-fiction period for me. I've been reading books about Trump's first term, um, for instance, by David Frum, uh, Trump Apocalypse uh, and stuff like that. Great. And I um, will just mention a book that I've I've started reading, which is quite thought provoking. Um, There's a a big uh, summit taking place in the UK in Bletchley Park on the future of, of artificial intelligence. Um, and lots of talk about existential risk and other other things like that, which are, uh, is going on. Um, but uh, I've been looking at it in a more conceptual way. And it's a very interesting book called The Political Philosophy of AI, which looks at how artificial intelligence intersects with a lot of the key ideas um, <clears throat> In political theory, whether it's what it means for for the idea of freedom or equality or power or other things like that. Um, 
Uh, so we'll put up links to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. As Jeremy said, be great to to get some reviews um, from you on of this uh, podcast when you go to subscribe on it on whatever platform you use to download this this episode on. And um, uh, when you're there, be also good to to get uh, some five star ratings to show that that you still enjoy Mark Leonard's world in thirty wait, minutes. Wait till next week. Wait till next week. <laughs> But for now, from Jeremy Shapiro, my Deruga, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Anand Sundar, and our editor is Mireya Farrow Saratz. Mm-hmm.